Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure that they're in fellowship, ready to focus on the Word of God. Uh, filled with the Spirit so that God, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, helps us to understand His Word, stores it in our soul, enables us to grow spiritually, will be active in our life. Whenever we sin, it shuts down uh, that ministry. The Scripture says it squelches it or quenches it. And yet, when we confess our sins instantly, that is recovered, and we are going forward again. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have this time to study your word now. To be reminded of who you are, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ the extent of your grace and the magnificent grace that was demonstrated on the cross by Jesus Christ, the work that he accomplished, the redemption price he paid, and the results of that in our lives. Now, Father, we must be reminded as we continue our study of redemption that though there are technicalities here and there are theological issues that are somewhat abstract for some of us. The bottom line is that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are yours and we are not our own. Father, we pray that you challenge us as we study your word today, that the Holy Spirit would refresh us, encourage us, strengthen us, and challenge us by all that we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever we are and involved with an unbeliever, and we give them the gospel, explain to them the plan of salvation. At the very core behind all that we're saying, all that we're communicating to them, is an understanding that this person who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone is someone for whom Jesus Christ died. We may not even like the person. They may be rather obnoxious personally. They may be part of a religious group that we are not very fond of. 
There may be political issues. There may be all kinds of things that enter into the situation where we may not really be too uh, thrilled with the fact that we're involved in a relationship with this particular person. But the fact is that all of us are born equally obnoxious to God. No matter how obnoxious that person might be to you personally, you were more obnoxious to God at the point that he sent his son to die on the cross for you than that other person is to you. Now, that's always a humbling thought when we think about that. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sin, just like he paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the penalty for the sin of the entire world. He had an atonement, as we began to study last week, that was unlimited in its scope not only unlimited in terms of its extent for all human beings, but it is also unlimited in that he paid the penalty for sin and principle and for sins specifically, so that there is no sin that is committed in human history that was left unjudged on the cross. God in his omniscience knew every single person who would live in human history He knew every single sin that would be committed in human history. And in his omnipotence, he was able to take all of those sins that he knew in his omniscience. And he was able to judicially impute those or credit them to the account of the righteous Jesus Christ on the cross so that in those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m., Jesus Christ paid the penalty judicially for every single sin. As we'll see as we conclude this morning in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. We are studying Revelation, and as we go through our study of Revelation down through the 22 chapters of the book, there will be numerous times when we stop for little a short sub-series to try to help us understand what's going on in the text. I know when we get start getting into the seal judgments in a uh, couple of months, we will be taking time to go look at rather obscure passages in the Old Testament, places like Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi and other places like that. And those are the parts in your Bible where the pages are still kind of stuck together. But we will try to pull all of that together because as we go through the book of Revelation, we recognize that it is the last canonical book revealed by God to man. And so everything that is said in the book of Revelation is built on an understanding of God's progressive revelation down through the ages from Genesis all the way down to Jude. So there is this assumption that as a person reads the book of Revelation, he has somehow mastered that which is revealed in other sections of the Scripture. We've come to that heavenly worship scene in Revelation 5, 8, where the 24 elders and the four living creatures and in a couple of verses the, all of the angels will join in with this chorus where they are singing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he accomplished on the cross. In Revelation 5, 9, we read, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God 
by your blood. For the last several weeks, we have paused to study this particular phrase because at the very core of the action in Revelation 4 and 5, as you build to this particular song of praise, the focal point of the song is on Jesus Christ's redemptive work on the cross because it is that redemptive work on the cross which qualifies him, which makes him worthy, makes him competent. We've seen the Greek word there is oxios, meaning meaning worthy, competent, qualified, uh, capable. He is capable to open the seals on this scroll, which means to execute the judgments necessary to bring about the uh, uh, taking the title deed to the earth and taking ownership of the planet. But if we do not properly understand this key phrase, redeemed us to God by your blood, then we do not understand what underlies what is going on here in Revelation because the starting point, what lays the basis for the book of Revelation, for the judgments that come in the tribulation and for Jesus Christ's return is what happened on the cross when he paid the sin penalty. So we have taken time to look at the doctrine of redemption. We have also looked at the doctrine of the blood of Christ and we have looked at the concept of substitution to some degree, and then beginning last time, we began to look at the doctrine of unlimited atonement. So let's just review a little bit as we are continuing to understand redemption. Man was created perfect, and yet when Adam sinned, it created a barrier between man and God. That barrier is erected by man and not by God. It is man who makes the choice to disobey God, and as a result of that, he incurs the penalty that God had announced in Genesis 2.17, which is spiritual death, separation from God. Sin, though, is, as we've studied, a very complex thing. It is not simply the fact of disobedience to God, but it affects numerous other areas. And we broke these down into six categories. You could probably have eight categories or ten categories, but for the ease of communication and pedagogy, we break them down into six. Sin itself, number one. Number two, the penalty of sin, which is the judicial penalty of spiritual death. Uh, in terms of the human race is separated from God. Uh, number uh, three, the character of God in terms of his righteousness and injustice. Number three, the fact that each of us are spiritually dead and need to have a solution to that problem before we can be saved. The, our own lack of righteousness and our position in Adam. Th- those are just some of the components that make up the barrier between man and God. And God, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, devised a perfect salvation, a complete salvation, a salvation that was so extensive that it would take care of every aspect of the sin problem, not only its core judicial penalty problem, but also the consequences that flowed from that penalty which came into the human race when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not doing a detailed study of the barrier. We're simply focusing on the foundation part, which is dealing with, number one, the extent of the atonement as unlimited atonement, dealing with the, the, the sin penalty itself, 
and then redemption, which is the payment of that sin penalty. So the unlimited atonement deals with the extent of the payment. Redemption has to do with the payment of the price. We've taken these in reverse order, dealing with redemption first, and now the extent of the atonement. I pointed out last time, and I want to make sure I get this into your thinking, that there are three things that are necessary for anyone to spend time in eternity. Three things have to take place. Often we think, oh, all you have to do is believe in Christ, but it's more complex than that. Three things have to take place before any fallen human being can spend eternity in heaven. The first is that the sin penalty has to be paid for. A transaction has to occur on the cross where that penalty is paid. And that is what takes place under the doctrine of redemption, as we have seen. The sin penalty is paid to make to pay redemption, to pay a ransom price, means to pay a price. Redemption means to pay for something. It is a financial term, and it means to purchase something. In, in some, cat, some cases where you have the preposition X in front of agorazo, it means to purchase something out of uh, the marketplace. And it was often applied to the purchase of slaves, which is particularly applicable to uh, human beings because we are born in slavery to sin and we are, when we are saved, taken from the, uh, taken from that enslavement, that, uh, slave market to sin. So the sin penalty must be paid. That's the first thing. And as we've studied, that happens on the cross and it is u- universal in its application so that the penalty for every human being and for every sin is paid for on the cross. But that doesn't get a person saved. Just because the penalty is saved, they still have two other major problems that relate to the individual. The second problem is that they lack the righteousness of God. And because God is perfectly righteous, he cannot have fellowship with any creature that has a lower righteousness than himself. A perfect righteousness cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. And so his justice has to be satisfied, and the individual, in order to have fellowship with him, must have the same kind of righteousness. So we're born with relative righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So our, the best we can do is just uh, garbage in the sight of God. So that has to be resolved. And then the third thing that has to take place is that we're born spiritually dead, but that spiritual death needs to be corrected. We need to become spiritually alive. Well, as we've studied the uh, second of those, the problem of our lack of perfect righteousness is resolved by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. We studied that some on Thursday night, that Christ's perfect righteousness is credited or imputed are reckoned to our account at the instant that we put our faith alone in Christ alone. And then God sees that perfect righteousness of Christ, and he declares us to be righteous, to be justified. That is the meaning of that historic phrase, justification by faith alone. That was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation, that man is justified at a point in time when he puts his faith alone in Christ alone, and at that instant that he receives the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, at that instant he is forever justified. He is still a sinner. He is still rotten in terms of his own personal uh, 
composition, constitution, because we're fallen, but what covers that is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then simultaneously and instantly, God the Father regenerates. God, excuse me, God the Holy Spirit regenerates the individual so that we are given a new human spirit, and at that instant we are a new creature, and we are also identified with Christ, so we are in Christ, that Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we're now a new creature in Christ. So three things are necessary to spend eternity in heaven. First of all, the penalty has to be paid. Second, we have to receive perfect righteousness. And third, we have to be regenerated. Christ pays the penalty objectively. That takes care of everybody. Second, the second and the third take place only when the individual puts his faith alone in Christ alone. So that the penalty was paid by Christ with his blood. That is the transaction. And as we saw last time, the phrase blood of Christ is a, is a figure of speech that describes his spiritual death on the cross when he is judged for our sins. So now we're answering the question, the extent of the atonement. That undergirds our offer of the gospel to anybody. If I walk up to you and I say that Christ died on the cross for you, uh, if Christ only died for the elect, then how can I say that? See, that's one of the problems that people get into if they hold to limited atonement. And there are certain Calvinists, high Calvinists and, super, and uh, uh, hyper-Calvinists, who have problems with that, and they do not believe in the universal offer of the gospel. And some do not even believe uh, in evangelism. And that is a problem that you get into. Now, not all Calvinists who believe in limited atonement uh, hold to that. There are moderate Calvinists who do believe in the uh, universal offer of the gospel, but in my view, you cannot truly have a universal offer of the gospel unless Jesus Christ truly actually paid the sin penalty for every human being so that we can offer them the gospels. We'll see in our concluding passage this morning, Second Corinthians 5, that is the ministry that has been committed to each one of you, each one of us. We have been given the ministry of the word of reconciliation or the message of reconciliation. So what undergirds all of this is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. We began it last week. First point was that the question, did Christ die for only the elect or did he die for all? We might rephrase that. Did Christ die for only those who believe or did he die, in fact, for every single human being? That is the historic question. Second point I said that uh, most high Calvinists and hyper Calvinists hold to limited atonement, and that is the idea that Christ died only for the elect. That is what we mean by limited atonement. In the acronym for Calvinism, they come out of the five points of the Synod of Dort TULIP, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement. I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. It's the L that we're talking about. And there are many Calvinists who are called moderate Calvinists who do not hold to the L, who hold to unlimited atonement. Because you hold to unlimited atonement does not make a person an Arminian. Uh, Arminius was the opponent, uh, a theologian who came along teaching a different system in Holland in the late 1500s, and it was his followers who caused this ecclesiastical uh, breach in the Dutch Reformed Church 
in the early 1600s, and so that was where the the whole system thing about five points of Calvinism uh, started. Actually, it was initially the five points of Arminianism, and the Calvinists were responding to that. So that's just a little historical uh, background. Third point is that undergirding this it was the problem of the meaning of substitution. In what sense does Christ really die for the unbeliever? Is this just a hypothetical? There was a, a Calvinist theologian some uh, 50 or 60 years following Dort by the name of Moses Amiro, who taught at the Theological Seminary somewhere, and he taught that there was a conditional covenant made, and Christ died uh, hypothetically or conditionally for uh, those who were uh, uh, who were not the elect. And that is one of many different ways in which the doctrine of unlimited atonement has been expressed over the, uh, over the years. There are other ways of expressing it, and, uh, but that's the predominant one among, among Calvinists, or at least it seems that way, usually because they haven't studied it enough to realize there's a number of other positions. But the core idea here is, was this substitution real or potential? Now, this is where we get into two Actually, there's a third uh, preposition that's not up here, but uh, three key prepositions used in the Greek in this debate. The first is huper plus the genitive, which has the idea of in place of, substitute. You also have the uh, preposition anti, uh, A-N-T-I, meaning in place of or substitute. And then in a couple of passages, you have a third preposition, peri, P-E-R-I, and it is. it also means in place of or on behalf of. And these three prepositions reinforce the fact that Christ died as a true, genuine substitute for us. He died in our place. The Old Testament picture, as we've studied, is that lamb that was sacrificed in the Passover. That when that lamb was sacrificed and that blood applied to the doorpost of the house at the time of the Exodus... It was that substitutionary death of the lamb that covered the house so that the angel of death passed over. That is the picture we have for redemption. Christ died in our place. So we have several passages in the scripture that utilize this word. Now, most of these utilize the preposition who pair plus the genitive. In establishing the Lord's table, Jesus said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. It is shed in the place of or as a substitute for many. It's who pair. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, we read, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given who pair, given for you, given as a substitute for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Romans 5, 6 through 8 is a very important passage on substitutionary atonement. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died who pair, died for in place of the ungodly. Five seven, for scarcely for a righteous man, same preposition again. Uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. The whole principle underlying these verses is that idea of substitution. Uh, Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were 
still sinners. In other words, while we were still at enmity with God, while we were still hostile to Him, looking at us not as potential children, but looking at us as antagonistic, fallen, rebellious children, Christ died as our substitute. Not because He looks at us and says that there's something good in us that makes us worthy of His grace, but because He loves us in such a way that He is going to do all that it takes to save us. First uh, Corinthians fifteen three and 4, For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, Paul wrote, that Christ died for our sins, who pair as a substitute for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then in 1 Peter 3.18, we have a slightly different preposition there. For Christ also died for sins, peri, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And see, if you see the synonymous parallelism between those two clauses, Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, you see that two different prepositions are used there and they must be synonymous. So that peri has the same sense that huper does, that is substitution. The reason this is important is, or one reason it's important, is because there are so many people who get the idea and are taught the idea, this comes out of 19th century Protestant liberalism, is that Christ's death on the cross was to show you how much God loved you. It was a demonstration of God's love. That goes back to a medieval heresy first set forth by Abelard. Uh, the moral view of the atonement. There are some other views of the atonement, but what Scripture teaches is a substitutionary atonement, sometimes called a vicarious atonement. It means the same thing, that Christ died for our sins in our place. So point number four, we see that Scripture teaches not only a substitutionary atonement, but also an unlimited Atonement. We looked at a couple of passages here last time, Isaiah 53, 6. Just as all of us have gone astray, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All. Uh, if we've all gone astray, then he has laid uh, the iniquity of all who have gone astray on Christ. So it is unlimited in its extent. Uh, God desires, therefore, for all to be saved in his permissive will, his desiderative will, as theologians will say. He desires all to be saved, but he doesn't violate volition, responsibility in that. And so there are those who do not believe, and so not all will be saved. Unlimited atonement is never understood to teach universal salvation. Jesus expresses this same level of compassion and desire for all to come to him, even though all will not, in Matthew 23:37, where he is weeping over uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus expresses that desire for all to be saved, but the limitation comes from their volition. John one twenty nine. As Jesus comes to John at the inauguration of his ministry, John announces that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just some, but that word world 
means all of the inhabited planet and all those who inhabit the world. And the way the, the word world is used in, in the Gospel of John can have some different uh, nuances, but here it indicates the entirety of the population of the planet without exception. This is seen in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world. That's the object of God's love, all mankind. For God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He contemplates the fallen world, the fallen mass of humanity, all of the individuals within it and all of the sin within it, and in his love, which is unearned and undeserved and unmerited, he demonstrates something to us. Uh, the accurate translation of John 3.16 would read that God loved the world in such a way. In other words, his giving of his son is an example of love. It begins with an adverb, hutos, uh, which has the idea of in this manner, in this way, God loved the world, that he gave his unique begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever, anyone, whosoever will, the old King James, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It is universal in its scope. He, God is providing all that is necessary for all that will believe to be saved. He is paying the penalty for all. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 is a very important passage. But we do see him, that is, we believers do see him, Jesus Christ, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that took place at the ascension of Christ, that by the grace of God he might, what? Taste death for everyone. We studied this in Hebrews. That word for tasting death is not just having a little nibble and just a little sense of what it tastes like. Like when you go through the grocery store and you have all the little samples they put out and you just get a little sampling of each one. That is not the idea here. The idea of tasting death for everyone is the idea of fully taking in fully experiencing death, fully dying and paying the penalty for every single person. He just didn't sample it a little bit. He just didn't take a little nibble. He uh, went through the entire experience of paying the sin penalty for everyone. And we come to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians is one of the most significant chapters in all of the New Testament. And we'll come back to this at the end as we deal with the conclusion to unlimited atonement. But in verses 14 and 15 we read, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that is, he pays the penalty for every human being, that they who live, that is, those who put their faith alone in Christ alone, should no longer live for themselves. Those who live are those who experience regeneration, those who are born again. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's the same principle Paul said over in 1 Corinthians, that you have been bought with a price. See, the problem that most Americans have 
and a lot of other people in the world too, but I think this is unique to American culture, is because of our background of freedom and liberty, we tend to think that, based on Galatians 5, when it says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that our freedom after salvation is not a freedom within slavery. Yet it is. You read Romans 6. Romans 6 says you were born as a slave to unrighteousness. But what happens after you are saved is you didn't become free in the sense of not having a master. You became free only in the sense that you are no longer under the tyranny of the sin nature. You moved from the tyranny of communism and socialism in the Soviet Union to freedom in the United States, but freedom in the United States doesn't mean there's no authority, doesn't mean it's anarchy, doesn't mean there's no law. See, when you make that transfer from being under the tyranny of the sin nature, you are now under the ownership of Jesus Christ. You are now to be a bond slave to righteousness. There's still authority. There is still demands. There is still a structure, and that is what is expected of every person who is now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Romans 6 is saying is that the sad thing is, is that most Christians are still living as if they're in slavery to the sin nature, just like someone who uh, would have escaped from the old Soviet Union back uh, when they were under, uh, under communism, come to the United States and yet still live in the United States in fear as if they still were in a totalitarian system. That wouldn't make sense at all. But that's how most Christians live. They still live as if the sin nature controls them and the sin nature is their master when that bondage has been, uh, has been broken. So we are not to live for ourselves Second uh, Corinthians 5.14, but we are to uh, live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What doctrine is that? Substitution, because he paid the penalty for us. Okay, let's look at uh, a couple of more verses that are uh, very important to understand here. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. And 5 and 6, 3 through 6. I don't have a slide on 3 and 4. First uh, Timothy 3 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. So if he desires all to be saved, then he would provide a salvation where it would be possible for all to be saved. And that can only happen if Christ's death on the cross was unlimited in, it, in its extent. Then we come to verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, that is not denying the undiminished deity of Jesus Christ, but it is focusing on his humanity because it is in his humanity that Jesus Christ as the God-man is able to stand as a mediator who partakes of both full humanity and undiminished deity who can function in that mediatorial role. Mary can't do it. There is no such thing as a divine mediatrix, which is what Roman Catholicism teaches. There is no uh, human priesthood that functions as a mediator. There is only one mediator between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus, who what? Gave himself as a ransom. There's our 
key doctrine there, redemption, who gave himself as a ransom. He paid the ransom price for all who pair. He is our substitute. And this is the basis for his atonement. Now, let's look at four key passages on the unlimited nature of the atonement. We have just led up to it, and now let's look at the key passages. The first is 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have, and I just want to focus on the center part of the verse here, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Now we'll just stop there a minute. We fixed our hope. Whenever we read that word hope, hope is the Greek word elpis, and it has a future orientation. It is looking forward to something, something that we expect, something we anticipate, and it has that idea of a confident expectation. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our confidence on the future. It is a living, on the living God, who is alive, not dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is the Savior of all men. So it's looking at Christ as the as, as God the Son here. This isn't God the Father. He is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, the Greek means exactly what the English says there. He is the Savior of of all men. That's without exception. Not without distinction, but without exception. All men, every single human being that has drawn breath throughout the centuries is has had his sins paid for. He is the Savior of all men, but in a unique way, in a special way, in an applied way, only to believers. He has paid the sin penalty for all, but only believers reap its benefits because only believers receive the imputation of Christ and only believers are regenerate. So 1 Timothy 4.10 is a key passage for demonstrating that there are two levels of, of uh, orientation to the saving work of Christ, one for all and another for only those who believe. The second passage we're going to go to is in 2 Peter chapter 2, Verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter is dealing with a congregation where it's come under the influence of apostasy and false teachers, and these false teachers are not saved. If you exegete through 2 Peter, you realize the false teachers here are not believers who have succumbed to false doctrine, who are now uh, wolves in sheep's clothing distracting the congregation, but they are indeed unbelievers. And here he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. The false prophets relates to the Old Testament under Israel. False teachers is presently in the church age. There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. These are destructive heresies because they get your attention off of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're destructive heresies because they get your focus off of the sufficiency of God's grace. They are destructive heresies because they get your attention off of the sufficiency of God's word. They are destructive heresies because they put your focus on human ability and human work and human effort and not on the sufficient, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are 
They are destructive heresies because they come along and say, well, you don't ever need to confess your sins. All you need to do is just uh, generally trust that that God will take care of it. And then there's never any post-salvation cleansing from sin or recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it is destructive to your ongoing spiritual life. Destructive heresies because it introduces concepts and orientations to the individual uh, uh Christian that causes him to emphasize things that are irrelevant and to ignore things that are crucial. And you see this today with the rise of the whole uh, church growth movement puts the emphasis on uh, quantity instead of quality, uh, reverses the focus of what Jesus Christ said to his disciples. Jesus told Peter on the mount of, of uh, when, when he's when he's talking to Peter and he says. Uh, Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, it's on this rock, using a play on words there with the name of, of uh, Peter, he says, on this rock I will build my church. Jesus said to Peter there, I will build the church. In John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus Christ went down to the uh, beach on the shore of the uh, sea of Galilee and Peter and the disciples have been out fishing all morning and they haven't caught a thing and as they come back to shore discouraged and despondent they see a man on the shore they don't recognize him and he says uh, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat and and you'll you'll bring in some fish and so they do and they bring in the largest haul they've ever seen and at that point they realize that the man on the beach is the Lord Jesus Christ so they come ashore and they um uh, clean a few fish, and they cook breakfast and have breakfast together. And then the Lord turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, I do. And he, the Lord said, then feed my sheep. And there's this threefold interchange there that's a lot of fun to study because it's got about four pairs of, of uh, synonyms there. And in those synonyms, the Lord is bringing out a lot of uh, interesting things. But again, he's talking to Peter. Earlier he told Peter, I will build my church And now he addresses Peter and he says, you feed the sheep. See, Jesus builds the church. The pastors, the apostles, are to feed the sheep. But what happens in the church today is that the pastors are trying to build the church and they leave it to the Sunday school teachers who are untrained and uneducated biblically for the most part and leave it to them to try to feed the sheep. So they've gotten the priorities all messed up. So you have destructive heresies related to the nature of the church and the role of the pastor. You have destructive heresies related to singings where it's all emotional, it's all self-centered, it's a, a contemporary Christian worship, and it's all about how you feel about God rather than what God has done for the individual. And so worship has been perverted, so most people are going to churches and wasting their time. Uh, destructive heresies that the focus of the message on Sunday morning is to make you feel good and to uh, motivate you and to stimulate you, but not on the basis of what Christ did on the cross and what God, the Holy Spirit, is providing for you, but it is stimulating you simply on the basis of your own, own emotions because you're so wonderful just in and of yourself. Go out and do great things. Isn't God wonderful? And it's just a complete perversion. There are all kinds of destructive heresies, heresies related to psychology, that if you have problems in life, the solution is to go to a counselor and a psychologist and not to the Word 
of God. Uh, it's too bad for 1,800 years Christians just couldn't solve all kinds of problems in their life because they didn't have the, the a- additional insights from Sigmund Freud and from Maslow and from Carl Jung and from many, many others. And, and so they just couldn't ever reach spiritual maturity. But the Word of God says that you don't need any of that stuff. All you need is the Word of God taught clearly and correctly. You don't need to go to uh, something else which will just destroy your Christian life. So uh, the problem throughout the church age is that there are false teachers, unsaved, unregenerate, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The, the reason he uses the word secret is because they're always encased in Scripture. You always go to these. I remember when I was in seminary and we had to take a pastoral psych course taught by a couple of men who had their uh, uh, psychiatric degrees and they're well known now because they have a chain of so-called Christian psychiatric uh, clinics and hospitals throughout the country. And about the best ba- biblical training they had was they'd gone through some navigator discipleship courses and, uh, and we would sit after class and we would go look at all the verses that they used to substantiate their points, and they were almost without exception taken out of context. And if you exegeted those verses in context, they would never support the points that they had. It's just a patchwork quilt, and that's what happens in so many places. You just get this proof texting where some verses slapped on a principle, and if you read the verse superficially, it sounds like it might have something to do with that, so it must be biblical. And so it is a secret introduction of destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That's the key phrase for the extent of the atonement. They deny Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of people down through church history who have done that. Abelard, I mentioned earlier, did not have a substitutionary view of the atonement. A post-Reformation lawyer in the 17th century, Hugo Grotius, did not have a view of substitutionary atonement. He had a covered mental view of the atonement, which was picked up by uh, probably his best-known uh, uh, follower in the early 19th century in America, uh, Charles Finney. And Charles Finney was uh, probably single-handedly responsible for more heresy and more distraction and more destruction in Christianity in America than any other individual. Because And he did not believe in total depravity. He did not believe that every human being was born a sinner. And Finney did not believe that Christ died as a substitute for us. And therefore, men are perfectible. And if men are perfectible, society is perfectible. And so it's the goal of the church to morally reform and perfect society. And that has led to all manner of political damage in this nation. But these men denied the master who bought them who actually redeemed them. So here Jesus Christ pays the sin penalty for these false teachers who deny him and do not uh, trust him. Next passage, our third passage is 1 John 2.2. 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world that he is the one who satisfied God's character. That's what propitiation refers to. 
Propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's righteousness and his justice. And in propitiation, we have a couple of key words. Uh, Kaporth, the first word, the word on the top is the Old Testament word that related to the mercy seat. The mercy seat is that area on the uh, Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubs. The cherubs represent the righteousness and justice of God. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood from the sacrifice of the lamb that was without spot or blemish and place it upon the mercy seat, the area uh, between the, the two cherubs. Inside the box were emblems of Israel's sin. There was uh, manna because they had rejected the provision of God. There was Aaron's rod that budded because they had rebelled against his provision of a priesthood. And there was also the broken Ten Commandments. So it is a visual image of how God's justice and righteousness is satisfied by sin being covered by the blood of Christ. Well, that's the principle that we have in the Greek word hilasmos and hilasterion, which are the words for propitiation. And the idea is that, that God's righteousness and justice are satisfied not just by our sins, but for the whole world. Because God in his righteousness has an absolute standard. In his justice, he has to deal with his creatures in terms of that absolute standard. And he can't compromise that standard. The real issue isn't why doesn't God save everybody, but why does God save anybody? You know, you get to witnessing and something, they say, well, how can you believe in a God who's going to send his creatures to the lake of fire? Well, you ought to turn the question around and say, how can you believe in a God who can save somebody who is unrighteous? See, that's the real issue. Well, he provided for that by having Jesus Christ die on the cross so that God's perfect righteousness was satisfied. His standard was satisfied by the righteousness of Christ and by his substitutionary atonement. So Christ is the one who satisfies the Father And so the doctrine of propitiation relates to the whole world. The doctrine of redemption relates to the whole world. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that the doctrine of reconciliation also relates to the entire world. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. What we see there is that it is man who is reconciled to God, not God to man. Because it is man who is the sinner. It is man who violated the standard in the garden. So man must be reconciled to God. It is man who is at enmity and at hostility with God. So God reconciles man to himself. God does the work. Man simply accepts it. He performed this work of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Not only did he perform the work of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, which took place on the cross, but then to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given the ministry of reconciliation to every one of us. Every one of you and me have the ministry of reconciliation, not just pastors. It's not just a pastor's job. It's not just the evangelist's job. It is every believer's job to pronounce and to proclaim the message of reconciliation. 
And this is the application. You have the objective work of reconciliation on the cross, but the subjective side, its application, its realization in experience takes place when we take the message to people and when they believe Jesus Christ died on the cross to their sins, then they personally, experientially are reconciled to God. That's verse 19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling most of the world, reconciling believers. Now, reconciling the world. This is the same world that Jesus Christ came to take away the sins of the world back in John 1. God loved the world in such a way, loved the world in such a way uh, as to send his only begotten son to die on the cross for us that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. See, as I pointed out last time, and in the first point in the introduction, by way of review, your sins are paid for. That's not the issue. The issue is belief in Christ, not whatever it is that you've done, whatever horrible sin, and no matter how bad they might be, whether you are a mass murderer, whether you are a... A homicidal maniac, whether you are uh, an abusive husband or abusive mother or, or no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how immoral you have been, that's not the issue because Christ was on the cross reconciling us to God. God is not going to impute our sins to us because they're paid for. So the issue isn't sin. The issue is Christ. And he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, because we've been given this message of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. God is the one working through you when you witness to unbelievers, pleading with the unbeliever. God is the one working through you. God the Holy Spirit is the one working to make the gospel clear to the one you are presenting it to, imploring them on Christ's behalf, to be reconciled to God. That's the subjective or experiential application. And the basis for that is that first point, the, the work that was done on the cross. And its application comes when righteousness is imputed to the individual. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the first step. The sin is paid for. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That happens with the second step, when a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone, the righteousness of Christ is credited to them, given to them, so that God doesn't see uh, anything that they've done, doesn't see their unrighteousness, doesn't see their immorality, never sees the failure. The whole basis of their acceptance to God is based on the righteousness of Christ. He paid it all. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, once again go through the mechanics of our salvation, the details of what Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things more clearly, that we might be able to more precisely explain the gospel to others, but that we might also have greater confidence in our own salvation and recognizing that it is all done by you and nothing is done by us. The, the merit is in Jesus the merit is not in anything that we have done. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. He had your sins in mind. He paid that penalty. 
And all that is left for you to do is to simply trust him, to rely upon him, to realize that that Jesus Christ did everything, and all you need to do is accept it as a free gift. And at that instant, God the Father will impute to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he will declare you justified, and he will simultaneously regenerate you, give you new spiritual life, you will be born again, and that life can never, ever be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning, that you would bring these things back to our memory. The Holy Spirit would give us recall that we might be able to use them efficiently and effectively in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.